Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I have with me Dr. Peter Maloney. Peter is a physiologist and recovery specialist at the Australian Institute of Sport and she is the lead physiologist for the Australian Paralympic team. At least she was in, in Tokyo 2020 and I think that was her second games at least. Um, welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks very much for having me, Liz. No problem. Uh, it's great to have you here. Peter, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into working with Parasport? Yeah, sure. Yep. So um, I actually started at the AAS back in 2013, I think it was, as a, it's almost like a trainee physiologist position and they last a year and it was a really wonderful year for me. I was just out of my undergrad to sort of get my hands dirty and, and learn a bit about various aspects of physiology. So it was really, yeah, it was really good for me to get experience across a range of different areas and work with a lot of different um, physiologists and practitioners within the AIS. And um, it was sort of later in that year that um, I developed a bit more of an interest around uh, para-athletes and um, physiology of para-athletes. And I was, yeah, fortunate enough to, to be able to undertake an honours and then a PhD looking more closely at para-athlete physiology. And for me, specifically, that was around cooling strategies with athletes with a spinal cord injury and then rolled into a PhD in thermoregulation in athletes with a spinal cord injury and different heat management strategies for them. And since then, I've, I've been a staff member here at AIS. So I've been, um, yeah, really fortunate to be able to sort of progress on my journey here at AIS and, and have had really great mentors along the way. We've had even within, you know, the recovery space, people like Shona Halson and, and Joe Miller here, and they've certainly been really um, great people for me to learn from along the way. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is a great environment uh, for collaboration and for, for supporting young people coming through in their profession. And I was just thinking, uh, as you were talking there, I'm going to have to get you back for another podcast because today we're talking about sleep, um, but I really do want to talk about thermoregulation and cooling. So we'll tap into you on that front in another podcast to come. Oh, for sure. I'd love to. I think, you know, whilst my PhD, I obviously spent a fair bit of time focusing on, on thermoregulation. It's been nice along the way to be able to work with athletes around various aspects of recovery and what better recovery strategy to, to chat about than sleep. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us why. Why is sleep important for athletes? Yeah, so um, we, of course, consider sleep to be one of those really fundamental recovery strategies. It's really important for that physiological and psychological restoration. It's the time when, you know, we have that growth and repair of, of muscles and, and cells and learning and, and memory consolidation. And there's, you know, plenty of evidence to show that when we don't have enough sleep, it can lead to sort of detrimental things like maybe we have a worse mood or, or immune function I think even from sort of a nutrition point of view that impaired glucose metabolism and appetite regulation is affected so there's all these sort of health implications I suppose but ultimately for athletes it can also lead to, to effects on performance and, and that's obviously what they care about the most so so yeah we, we want to really instill mm. good um, sleep habits in, in our athletes and and hopefully improve their performance along the way. And so how do you actually assess sleep in an athlete? Yeah, well, I suppose um, 
gold standard for assessing sleep in any person, athlete or otherwise, is, is polysomnography. But it's, you know, quite labor intensive. It's, it's often done in a lab. It can be expensive. So it's not typically the, this, um, the strategy we go to for assessing sleep. That's usually for when someone's investigating, say, sleep disorders or they're doing research studies. But for us, we look to use a, a process, but often that involves monitoring sleep with activity monitors, so a research-grade activity monitor. I'm probably stepping a bit ahead, though, because in our process of, um, of working with athletes and their sleep, we probably begin with a, with a sleep consultation or just a conversation with athletes around, you know, if they're having troubles with their sleep or if they want to optimise their sleep, what can we do to, to understand more about their sleep habits and, and target ways to improve it? So it, I suppose when we work with athletes initially to assess their sleep, we just start with a conversation and sometimes that can be aided by things like a sleep diary. So sometimes we, if an athlete is particularly concerned or interested in their sleep, we might say, why don't you monitor your sleep for, you know, say a week or two? We can record things like your time you're going to bed and waking up and your different habits, how you, how you subjectively rated your sleep on each night and refer back to that to start, start to target some things that may help to improve sleep. We can also use questionnaires at this point too. I really find the, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index a really helpful one because it um, just provides some initial insight into, I suppose, an athlete's perceived sleep quality. Um, and we can use that at various points to assess how they're tracking. But yeah, I think that initial sort of gathering of information in consultation with the athlete is important. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose if beyond that there's a reason to um, look at their sleep more closely, that's when we might use some type of device and for us we, yeah we typically go to and like a actigraphy watch so that research grade watch and that gives us you know some good information around sleep duration you know, how long it takes an athlete to fall asleep the sleep quality mm -hmm. but um the thing we miss i suppose with an activity monitor like that is it won't give us um any information on on sleep stages the tool that will do that is is polysomnography so we just get some key objective indicators of, of how that sleep is and we can use that alongside that uh, you know, qualitative information from the athlete. And mm. I think, yeah, this, is, this can sometimes be a really valuable strategy too because it allows the athlete to understand more. Sometimes athletes perhaps think they're sleeping worse than they are or vice versa. So it can also be sort of that education tool along the way. And I think like especially for para-athletes, we can use that sort of objective information and, and discuss that also with a doctor or a psychologist or another service provider um, to sort of, for me personally at least, you know, understand more about um, the impact of that athlete's impairment on their sleep and ways to improve it as well. So I think through that process of consultation, collecting data through some monitoring and then integrating that with some advice and education and then repeating that all over again at various times can be, can be quite useful. And I think like also that, that repeating element is, um, is important too because we know that even though some athletes we provide sleep education, it can be lost along the way as well. So coming back to it often is helpful too. Yeah, and I guess you know different scenarios, people have different sleep patterns depending on what else is going on in their life um, and maybe even related to the training load that they're going through or you know, various other 
component. So it is something that isn't a static thing, is it? No, no, that's that's such a such a good point. Yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of questions that came up. Firstly, how many? You know, not, obviously not everyone has problems with sleep. So roughly in the para athlete population that you've worked with, what percentage would have? significant enough issues with their sleep that is likely to impact on performance and is and is that different to able-bodied athletes yeah look I think it's um I don't know whether I would have the confidence to say is it is it um does it come up more in para-athletes and able-bodied athletes in theory there's probably good reasons why it could but I would say it's not uncommon for I don't know sleep to be a challenge for athletes maybe like I don't know 20 maybe 25 percent of athletes at times will have um, challenges with their sleep that they want to sort of work on and certainly I think in many cases that can have an effect on their their performance specifically around training too sort of sometimes it's those I don't know like it's not that it's quite common I think for athletes to have challenges with their sleep really you know acutely around competition Mm. and that might just be you know a night or two before before a major event where athletes are feeling like their sleep is a little compromised, maybe they're a bit more anxious leading up to competition. That is really common. I think that happens in your every second athlete. And I think it's important to sort of yep. in some ways normalise that, you know, that's okay and that's a really common thing to experience yep. just because, you know, most of your competitors are probably feeling like that at some point as well. So I think, you know, in those acute situations, it's very common. And I think maybe more so in the, in the training environment, yeah, it's probably that sort of, a quarter of athletes at some point where I feel like you know there's a real benefit to sort of digging a bit deeper and yeah and investigating their sleep and sleep hygiene a little bit further yeah and the second question that I had and and maybe we can come back to this a bit later you you mentioned the tools that that look at duration of sleep and I know a lot of new like things like the Apple iWatch and and other devices, new exercise tracking devices have incorporated a sleep component into those devices. Are they still useful for an athlete to become familiar with their own sleep patterns or are they actually more a distraction, do you think? I think it maybe depends on the athlete. At its core, I think they are definitely, if there's something that's worn, so if they're worn on the wrist, for example, then certainly in the right situation, they can actually be a good educational tool in terms of like creating more awareness around sleep and and that sort of thing. I think that it certainly can be a positive thing. For some athletes, that may be a distraction and you sort of got to weigh that up depending on that individual athlete. But Certainly, I think, you know, it can be a really positive thing. I would say that if it's worn, it's best. If it's something that's not worn for like some type of app or or whatever, it's not accurate at all. And if it's a worn device, we just, um, if it's reporting anything to do with sleep stages, then you know you can't, you know, you wouldn't rely on that. But certainly those more broader details around sleep duration can be useful and and sort of tracking that over time and and noticing if there's changes in your in your sleep over time when you're monitoring with one device is it can be uh, quite useful I think there's just there's so many um, wearables out there these days that I think we're constantly having to to move to stay on top of what's accurate and what's not accurate and what can we pay attention to and what can't we but yeah, very, very topical and certainly something that, that has its advantages, but things that we have to be cautious of as well. Yeah, so being able to have a conversation with someone who's knowledgeable in that area is 
the best strategy because then it helps to process the information in a more objective manner. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, that's, as you, as you kind of alluded to there, it's also just a really good conversation starter as well. So not only can you get a bit of information about if the device you're using is something that can be relied upon in, in certain aspects, it's also just a good way to, yeah, become more aware of it and, and things that you can look for to, to improve your sleep or, or markers that you can be aware of beyond just the objective number of, you know, the duration, for example, but also just how you're feeling. Yeah, cool. And so why do para-athletes experience sleep disruptions or poor sleep? So are there particular aspects of para-athletes themselves that you've noticed seem to be related to more issues with sleep, yeah. such as their impairment or anything that they're experiencing? Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is something that I feel like I've, I've learned along the way um, as I've sort of had the opportunity to work with different impairments and also different practitioners who work with those athletes to, so that I can understand more about impairment and, and the effects on sleep. But certainly on top of those ordinary things that, that athletes have, you know, athletes in general um, generally have poorer sleep quality than the general population, you know, due to things like, say, like their commitments. Often having training around life commitments can can be challenging. It's an added load. There's, you know, early or, or late training can can reduce sleep. So if you're waking up really early, you're probably cutting your sleep short a little bit. Or if you're training really late, you're probably not, you know, you don't have as much time to sort of wind down and, and get ready to sleep. But in para-athletes specifically, there definitely are impairments that perhaps place them at, at greater risk of poor sleep. I, I think certainly in our Athletes with a high spinal cord injury, you know, that impaired circadian rhythm and, and potential disruption to, to melatonin regulation, that that's definitely, you know, there's potential there for them to have greater sleep challenges. And that's certainly something that um, I've observed in practice is that, yeah, those high spinal cord injuries tend to have um, more challenges with sleep. Mm -hmm. I think also around that, you know, that circadian rhythm line, athletes with a vision impairment, for example, mm -hmm impaired sleep and um, you know, poor sleep quality. I think athletes, many para-athletes generally just experience more muscle soreness and pain for various reasons, yep. whether that's you know, yep. limb pain associated with it, you know, an amputation or, or athletes with CP. There's just so many, I suppose, unique characteristics about certain athletes and impairments that may lead them to, to yeah, to, to be prone to, to more pain. And I think with, you know, with that in mind, I mean, that's only a few examples, but I think it's all really unique to the athlete. And, and I think I'm, I'm learning every day as I come across different impairments and different athletes, how many challenges there may be. And I think it's the same with, you know, when we develop strategies, I suppose, to, to um, sort of overcome some of those challenges with sleep that's so important that we consider the, the individual in, in those strategies. Sure. Sure. That's a common theme that runs throughout um, para-sport, I think. So one of the things that I heard at one point in time working with visually impaired athletes, particularly those who have complete visual impairments where they don't actually get the sunlight influencing their melatonin release and therefore their circadian rhythm, that uh, a human's natural circadian rhythm is actually longer than 24 hours. It's more like 24 and a half to, to 25. Is, is that something that 
you've heard as well? Yeah, yeah. Our, our, our body clock is just over 24 hours, and I think that's also plays into how we think through some some strategies around long haul travel, for example, and how we advance mm. and delay our, our body clock to adjust to a new time zone. So yeah, certainly that that it is just over that that 24 hours and. For those athletes who, yeah, who have impair, impairments to their vision, that regulation without that sort of, as you described with melatonin, it's, it's, it can have that ability to affect our circadian rhythm and make it challenging to have that really good quality overnight sleep. Mm. And so what are some strategies that athletes can use to improve their sleep? You mentioned earlier having good sleep hygiene. What does, what does that mean and what are some other strategies that, they, that you recommend? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we want to encourage athletes to have like a really consistent routine and that factors in a lot of things, but specifically around, you know, the time they go to bed and the time that they wake up at our body, that that daily rhythm, it, it responds very well to consistent routine. And I think um, when you can get that right, that's really helpful for improving both the quality and the quantity of your sleep. So I think routine is a big one. I think that a sleep environment is also really important. We often say, you know, is it cool, dark, quiet and comfortable? And if you can tick those four boxes, then you're in a pretty good place. And I think that also carries across to, um, to how you manage sleep during travel as well. For example, if you can take those principles of how can you make your room cool, dark, quiet and comfortable, you're probably um, going to be in a pretty good place as well. Mm-hmm. And then just having some some strategies in place prior to bed and maintaining that. So, you know, doing a similar thing every night, finishing up work or focusing on, you know, those really, I suppose, more draining tasks a bit earlier, winding down, brushing your teeth, maybe writing a list of things to do for the next day. And then, yeah, just having some some wind down strategies to, to draw upon if you need them once you're in bed. So whether it's, you know, maybe some meditation tracks or, or progressive muscle relaxation or something that sort of puts you in that state where you're ready to sort of fall asleep. You're not worried about what's happening tomorrow, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think they're probably some key things, but also, I mean, it would be remiss of me not to mention electronic devices. I think yeah, <laughs> they're everywhere um, in our lives. And I, I suppose from my point of view, I think it's probably easier to focus on not removing it from your environment altogether, but maybe just identifying when you can sort of, when you sort of need to put it to the side and and recognize that it's probably stealing sleep time or maybe you're doing something quite stimulating. So I think just for, for athletes these days, it's just about having that awareness around when is the time to put it away so that it's not stealing that sleep time. If I didn't have my device with me, would I probably just fall asleep? And if that's the case, then, you know, maybe that's some, something to, to put to the side and to be a bit more mindful of. But, yeah, so I think it's probably avoiding electronic devices and then even maybe more in your um, area of expertise in particular is around sort of considerations around food and fluid before bed. I think the things I think about it, hydration, like not having too much to drink before you go to sleep, so it's not waking you during the night and avoiding sort of caffeine later in the day. We generally want to avoid alcohol because we know it can affect the quality of our sleep. So I think there's definitely some some food and fluid considerations that play into, you know, promoting good sleep as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any foods that you're aware of or any components of foods that help promote good sleep? I mean, there's a lot of 
anecdotal evidence or maybe it's old wives' tales about, you know, milk before bed being beneficial to sleep, anything that you know from the research that is really consistently shown to be useful? Oh, do you know what? I actually, I think that question is outside of my wheelhouse. I'm not really sure. I, d- I definitely, um, I do know about, you know, avoiding avoiding the caffeine and alcohol is important, but composition of, of foods, I'm, I'm less sure on, but I think it's like certainly an important area and there definitely would be research out there about it. Um, not that I'm across though. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I think some of it's old wives' tales and some of it's also very individual. I guess one thing that I find interesting and, and sometimes challenging, you know, from a sports dietitian's perspective, we're encouraging athletes to be adequately hydrated and it's getting a careful balance between adequate hydration versus overhydration and also the timing of that fluid intake and I often say to athletes it's okay if you have to get up once in the night to to pee as long as you get straight back to sleep but if you're drinking so much that you're getting up several times during the night then that's not what we're trying to achieve. Do you think that's a reasonable kind of balance that the once a night if you can if you're having to get up to pee and then you get back to sleep reasonably quickly is that okay or are we actually trying to get people to sleep all the way through the night no actually I, I think you spot on there and I'm actually really glad to hear you say that because it aligns with with my thinking as well I'm probably on the right track with my advice around hydration as well is certainly like if you're um if you're waking up once to go to the toilet during the night I think that's totally fine. Probably the most important aspect of, of that is that, as you've noted, you fall back asleep quite quickly. Mm. We tend to sort of speak to a few key indicators of good sleep, and that's certainly one of them, that you can you can sleep through the night with brief awakenings, maybe, you know, once or twice, but that you fall back asleep quite quickly. So certainly from a hydration point of view, that that's something to consider. And yeah, it is hard, isn't it? Because I think athletes often hear that hydration is so important, but perhaps forget about the timing aspect of that and and how we sort of work that in around sleep. Yeah, and I think that's all part of the global education process and and the reason why it's really good to collaborate with you know with other practitioners and between yourselves because there's there's always a, an objective that we all want to meet. It's finding the most pragmatic way of doing that that doesn't interfere with other components of health well-being and performance in particular for athletes yeah I agree and I think also like you know we we often emphasize how important you know sleep is but as you said kind of have to you know balance it with keeping things in perspective and acknowledging that sleep is not going to be perfect all the time and I think that's why we often refer to you know a few key points around how athletes can sort of identify if they're if they're sleeping well, you know, and, and we usually say that one about the, you know, sleeping through the night with brief awakenings, but also that they're, you know, falling asleep within 30 minutes and that you wake up feeling refreshed within an hour of waking most days of the week. And I think like having those few key things to fall back on often puts things into perspective because perhaps athletes realize that, oh, it's okay, you know, if I don't wake up, you know, jumping out of bed and I'm, you know, ready to go every day or that, you know, I don't fall asleep within 10 minutes or whatever. So there's there's things you can say and do to sort of put that into perspective and acknowledge that there's certainly a balance there. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about athletes who frequently use 
either known sleep aids or things like antihistamines, which have a drowsy effect to help them sleep. Yeah, I think often uh, a lot of, I suppose, pharmacological strategies are they can they can help say for example melatonin they can help with adjusting to a new sleep routine or, or or starting the process of falling asleep but they're generally not something that can be relied upon sort of on an ongoing basis so at least from from my perspective the, the ways that we try and i suppose initiate some really good behaviors and and long-term changes or long-term habits is to yeah to just to focus on the behaviors and the and the routine and the environment Mm. and having strategies in place when you're not sleeping well that are sort of more behaviorally focused as opposed to any like kind of medications I think at times they may have their place but it's really I suppose difficult to rely on something like that and you know hope that that will have any you know long-term um benefit yeah. i think for yeah certainly from my perspective better to focus on on just good behaviors sure sure and you mentioned earlier that travel across different time zones in particular can be a challenge in terms of a disruption to sleep patterns in addition to that, often when we travel, and I certainly experienced this myself, you end up sharing a room with somebody else who may have a different body clock or different needs. What sort of things can para-athletes do to improve sleep when they're travelling? Yeah, the roommates, the roommates one is an interesting one and it's certainly something that's been, I know we've discussed it with sports in the past, like sometimes you can kind of, I think, be strategic with, I don't know who rooms together when practically possible. You know, maybe you do pair people up who are on a pair who are on a similar sort of sleep schedule, if you like. You know, those early morning rises go together and so forth. Mm. Or, you know, um, maybe people who who like the environment a certain way, but it's always a bit tricky and not always practically possible. But I think beyond you know consideration around roommates, just those things that make the room feel a bit more comfortable for you. I know we often just say something as simple as if an athlete can and wants to take their own pillows, that might help. For more um, significant mm-hmm. travel, like where there's a there's a time zone shift, you're obviously dealing with, you know, such a drastic change that can have a real, you know, physiological effect on our ability to to get into a new sleep routine along the way. But I think um, one of the best strategies and potentially the most um, underrated, based on my conversations with athletes, is just being well rested prior to entering into travel so like Mm. if you can bank sleep prior to departure for a really long haul trip that can put yourself in a really good place prior to arrival and then also you know we in Australia are often traveling such long distances to get to benchmark events that we really encourage athletes to take whatever sleep they can get on a plane so on a long haul trip like we know that quality and quantity is going to be reduced anyway so rather than trying to sort of go to sleep at a specific time or maybe even try and stay awake you just take whatever you can get and that will usually help and I think often like that's probably something we get asked a lot about is like should you you know stay up a lot before you have a long haul trip so that you can sleep a bit more on the plane or or what are some strategies to sort of adjust to the time zone during travel but I think for the most part just taking whatever you can get on the plane and being well rested is actually the most impactful thing you can do mm. I think and that being the the double the double bonus of being well rested before you leave is that it also helps your immune system which you know when you're traveling a long haul you're exposing yourself to 
lots of germs and so your immune system is something that needs to be looked after at that time so it's a, a double bonus oh absolutely and i think there's you know there's some some good evidence around you know increased rates of you know upper respiratory tract infections for example if you are compromised a little bit with your sleep relating to that immune function so Absolutely. I think you put yourself in a really good place from that immune function point of view as mm. well. So yeah, in the lead up to and during travel, it's all about just banking sleep and taking whatever you can get, I think. And then upon arrival, it kind of depends on the destination a bit, but certainly like, you know, some strategic napping. So not, you know, <laughs> napping crazily and effect, you know, affecting your ability to fall asleep to that nighttime sleep, but, you know, some, some napping can help sort of mm supplement that sleep debt and using different recovery strategies to sort of stay awake before going to sleep, contrast showers, even pool sessions we've, we've used in mm. the past. Um, and then also a bit of um, strategically planned sort of light exposure and avoidance can be useful, but it's always um, a bit challenging as well because you're sort of working that around the practicalities of perhaps, you know, being with a team and the different other things you need to schedule. So I think, you know, upon arrival, there's lots of strategies you can put in place, but um, ultimately, yeah, you're trying to just adjust to that time zone the best way possible. And, and I think napping is really useful for mm. that. Wish staff could nap sometimes. <laughs> yeah, great. I was like, that's the great, that, wouldn't that be the best thing? I think often we, if you arrive re- really early at a, you know, a destination, there's that morning opportunity to sort of take a little bit of a nap. But often that's the time when as staff you end up being busy on the ground, you're trying to figure things out and get things sorted for the athletes. So usually we miss out on the naps, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And I'm a I'm I'm not a good sleeper at the best of times. So I'm I'm a firm believer in wearing my ear earplugs and eye mask at night when I'm especially when I'm sharing a room or or travelling just to to keep that, as you say, the quiet, dark you know, nature of the room it doesn't matter if some if my roommate is is working through the night or comes in at a different time. I you know I've looked after my own needs through that avenue. So you know, simple things like that can definitely help. Oh, absolutely, and it sort of puts the more of the you know the control in your hands, doesn't it? Like it, mm. you have those things to like as you described, you sort of you sort of doesn't matter as much, I suppose, who that roommate is or what that sleep environment might look like you can sort of take back a bit of that control which is definitely helpful yeah fantastic so peter do you have any recommendations for practitioners whether they're physiologists or coaches nutritionists psychologists in terms of working with para athletes yeah for sure like i think um i learn a lot from para athletes just through my discussions with them and i think um, you know, regardless of whether you're an experienced practitioner working with para-athletes or, you know, it's new to you working with para-athletes, you can really, uh, you know, harness a lot of their experiential knowledge in whatever you're doing. So, like, you know, in sleep, that's through the consultation pro- process, asking them how they feel and respond to certain strategies, what challenges they have. I also think that, you know, applies to, like, all other aspects. Like, I know for me, I, I take a similar approach when I'm working with athletes to prescribe, you know, individual recovery protocols or, you know, cooling strategies or whatever it may be. So I think like for me, I think that's probably the best recommendation I could have is to like not just engage with, you know, other practitioners, which is vitally important, but also bring in the athlete into that process and Mm -hmm. allow, I don't know, allow yourself to learn from them as well and and, and the ways to improve and individualise their their training and and recovery and and sleep. Mm -hmm. 
Cool. And what about for athletes? Any any sort of sum up or recommendations summarise for them? Yeah, I think it's probably in many ways much the same. I think the more an athlete can be in tune with how their body feels and responds to training interventions, recovery interventions, whatever it may be, I think the more an athlete can learn and really be in tune with their bodies, the better we as practitioners can also be because we we bring in a certain, you know, subject matter knowledge and they bring in that impairment specific knowledge and the way their body responds. So I think being in tune with their their bodies and, and being willing and, and you know wanting to, to share that information can, can really go a long way. I think about some of the maybe better work that, that I feel like I've, I've done with athletes and it's really been that, that athlete engagement has really, really made the difference and made it something that's led to some, you know, some really good, good change. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just keeping that conversation going both ways and acknowledging that everyone has something different to bring to the table. I think that's, you know, really invaluable. Yeah, 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 great. And finding someone that you can have that conversation with who has the expertise and knowledge to to help guide you uh, in that direction. Yeah, I think that's what I also really love about working in parasport too is it's often really, you know, we, we don't always find all the answers that we want in, you know, in an article or in something published. And, you know, it's that exploratory nature of figuring out what works both through different people's perspectives and, and just trial and error. So I think, yeah, it's really, for me, that's a really enjoyable part of my work. Yeah, cool. Okay, great. Peter, thanks so much. Before we go, though, what's your favourite food? Oh, gosh. Do you know what? I would probably have to say I, like, I really like Japanese cuisine, so I think anything Japanese is good. You know, it's funny because we've just, you know, we've all just come from, from Tokyo and I think, we didn't really have any Japanese. Can get to experience that much Japanese food. <laughs> no, that's right. But I'll be sure. I mean, I've been to Japan before, but I'll sure sure to head back as a tourist another time again. But yeah, I think Japanese food for me. Uh huh. Have you ever made your own sushi? Yeah, I have. But sometimes I'm not. You know, usually don't have the the energy to do it. I usually just order it. But I just I have tried my I've tried my luck at making it, but it never seems to taste as good as as what I buy so usually I'm buying it I don't know that might be crazy <laughs> though too I definitely don't have a don't have great amazing cooking skills I should say <laughs> yep <laughs> oh it's a tricky one to do especially sushi it's very very specialized well thank you very much Peter for your time I really appreciate your insight and as I said I look forward to getting you back on the podcast at other times to talk about thermoregulation, temperature regulation um, and your expertise in that area but really appreciate your insights into sleep and the importance for athletes. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. Peter does a great job of highlighting the fact that it's really simple strategies of consistent routine that is the most important for sleep rather than looking for fancy solutions or fancy ways of measuring sleep. In terms of the nutrition and foods that influence sleep, there's some mixed results about that. There are some indications that certain forms of protein-rich foods like turkey can be beneficial to sleep and maybe a high-protein diet, a high-protein meal just before sleep may help with sleep duration, but also higher carbohydrate intake may help with sleep onset. 
it's fairly mixed and I think the upshot is that a mixed meal that includes some forms of carbohydrate, certainly the more slower digesting forms of carbohydrate with a good protein source is a, is a good option. And it's probably more important to consider the timing and the quantity of food and making sure that you're not over consuming too much food late in the evening, which then increases the demand on the gut. Thank you for listening and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. As usual, if you have any comments or suggestions on topics or people you'd like to hear from, please leave a message in the message box. Uh, If you'd like to be on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. And next week, we will be hearing from Gustavo Osorio, who is a strength and conditioning coach with the US Paralympics track and field team.